Welcome to On the Middle East, our monitor's podcast on the big stories in the region. My name is Amran Zaman, and with all eyes on Turkey's watershed elections on May 14th, I'll be looking at how the campaign is unfolding in the majority Kurdish southeast region. Kurdish voters are slated to tip the elections once again, as they did in the 2019 municipal polls, allowing the main opposition to sweep Turkey's largest cities, including Istanbul. Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is determined to prevent that from happening again. How far will he go to stop the opposition candidate Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu from winning? Will there be the kinds of provocations and violence that unfolded when Erdogan lost his parliamentary majority in 2015 for the first time? With us here today to talk about these issues is Jaylan Akça, a linguist and former human rights activist who is running for parliament on the pro-Kurdish Green Left Party ticket from the Kurds' informal capital, Diyarbakir. So welcome to our program, dear Jaylan. It's great to have you with us here today. Thanks for having me, Ambedi. So Jaylan, you're in Diyarbakir where you're campaigning on the ticket of the Green Left Party, which is the pro-Kurdish party. At least that's one way of describing it, though some of you may disagree because you have a much broader platform and you can tell us a little bit about that as well. But uh, just to give our audience a sense of how things are going down there, can you tell us how the atmosphere in Diyarbakir is right now? So, uh, as you know, the the political crowd of HDP is actually going into these elections under the umbrella of Green Left Party, along with other um, small parties, left-leaning parties. And... um, so I'm one of those candidates running for Diyarbakir, running from Diyarbakir, my hometown, where I'm from, exactly. Um, and uh, so I, I have been campaigning for the last three, four weeks, and it's been an absolute festival. It's just so much joy out here. People are really hopeful. They're really optimistic about the prospects of life in general after May 14. And... Um, while there there is a bit of pressure from the government and you know its police force and its army and its uh, cronies, uh, but overall it's it's a really positive atmosphere. We go to villages, we go to neighborhoods, we go to business owners, uh, we sit down with housewives, we sit down with farmers. It's just we we are able to communicate with different parts of society. The the slogan that would describe the atmosphere here is we go and ask people, we say, do do you have anything, uh, you know, do do you have any uh, needs? Do you have any asks? Like, what do you need from us? What do you think we should be doing? And they say, you you don't need to do anything. We got this. We're just going to send these off, send these guys off on May 14, and it's all going to be great. You could do your part after May 14, but until then, just leave it up to us. Another thing that is really joyful for me is when I go, for example, I was at this uh, industrial zone talking to people in these repair shops, and um, they kept saying, why are you wasting time with us? 
our color is already very obvious. You know, we're with you, we're, we're with Green Nut. Go waste your time or use your time wisely with people who are not convinced. Don't waste time with us. So that's, that's really that's um, great. They're very pragmatic, aren't they? And so, you know, looking at Diyarbakir, you know, clearly your party has always been very, very popular and strong there. But there's also a, a small kernel of the population that's still very uh, religiously conservative that um, has in the past voted for Erdogan. And you've now got this other uh, religious party with a violent past uh, in the arena. And I'm, of course, talking about Hudapar. Uh, how is that playing out? And also, could you just Tell us a little bit more about the pressures you face. Perhaps start with that and then tell us a bit about Hudapar, this party that's in there, sort of like a stalking horse, in fact, for the AKP. Let me start with the pressure part first. Um, how we are, not us, but you know, our audience, our supporters are being intimidated by the police force. Uh, wherever we go, there's always um, presence of um, riot police with gears. They are always waiting on the side and uh, they always have their speaker on. So if we say any triggering words for them, words like isolation or words like war, uh, words like fascist, that's always triggering for them. So then they start using their speaker, not to warn us, but just to make noise, which is a bit irritating and a bit childish and petty, honestly. Um, and then in, in other uh, times, what they do is they just walk with us. They follow us everywhere. I was in Kojakoy with our uh, party executives and we were walking the whole town and there were, I think about a dozen police officers following us around. Eventually they all got so tired. One of them started begging us. He was like, please just stop it. So you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of when I would go to the southeast in the winter to places like Hakyari. There would always be, you know, police, but in plain clothes following us. And just to irritate them, I would leave my hotel at like 1 a.m. and go for a walk. You know, I'd be freezing, but just to get back at them, I'd do that. And I could see how irritated and tired they were. They weren't used to walking, so this really amused me. Yeah. No, it's a, yeah, basically, they. I mean, it's a really waste of resources in this country. I think they could be used for better purposes. Like, I, I think there's a need for human power in earthquake zones, so why not repurpose them in that area instead of having them follow us around? We're just practicing our legitimate political activities, uh, political engagements, and um, it's, it's a waste of time and energy and resources, I must say. Um, in, in, in another way, uh, another way that they, they do harass us is just filming us constantly. Whenever people say something, they make sure to turn that police camera towards them, uh, which sort of meets the promise Erdogan made, you know, a criminal record for every household, which is the case in the Southeast, honestly. Uh, almost everyone that I touch, everyone I talk to, they talk about a family member being in prison, uh, sentenced to at least six years. Six years is the minimum uh, someone gets here because of these bogus terrorism charges against journalists, civil society groups, artists, politicians, anyone 
who is engaged in peaceful um, uh, political uh, activities. Um, about your question with Hudapar and Yeniden Refa, um, it's it's funny, their presence is almost invisible. I don't see them anywhere. I don't see them engaging with the public. I don't see them hold any um, activities. I don't see them uh, give speeches. And I am everywhere. My, my uh, schedule starts at 8 in the morning and ends at around 11 p.m. And I don't see them anywhere. And I go from the center to the villages to the districts. So I'm everywhere and I don't see them. And I ask my other friends, other uh, comrades who are also campaigning in other towns, they don't see them either. Um, and I, I think that's because of um, the knowledge that they know. They know that they, they don't have much uh, chance here. They can't stand a chance against our politicized supporters who already know what to do. For instance, we go to houses, we go around with these uh, sample ballots, right? We show people, we say, okay, you're gonna put your stamp here. This is this is how we look on the on the ballot in Diyarbakir. And they, they, they just say, you know, we know it. Of course we know. We know that there's the presidential one. We know that there's a parliamentary ballot. So it's all very clear to them. That's why I don't think they could stand a chance. So, Getting to the issue of Kemal um, Kılıçdaroğlu, your campaigning on a platform of, you know, vote for us in the parliament and vote for Kılıçdaroğlu uh, for the presidential election. How excited are the Kurds about Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu? We know that he has ethnic Kurdish roots. He's an Alevi, um, but still he's very much a product of the system, you know, spent decades in the Turkish bureaucracy and appropriated some of its mentality. Um, are you able to, you know, are you confident that people will heed your call to vote for him in sufficient numbers? Um, before that, I'd like to stress how critical our party's role is here, because the the Erdogan government and the, the general uh, political um, I don't know how to describe this one because it's, it's the, the state the state policy was to push this this country into a two-party system. They would be um, you know almost like the, the US system honestly. And um, so they were expecting to have um, a Turkish opposition, a majority Turkish opposition and then a right-wing conservative government. And they were hoping to run the country like this for uh, decades. However, our party is presenting a third way here. We we give people a third choice. We say that you're not condemned to the two-party system. You're not condemned to two choices. We offer you a third one that will be like a checks and balance on these two parties. It, we're going to make sure we're going to go to the parliament so strong that both parties will rely on us to make any sort of decision, any sort of long-lasting, uh, sustainable decision, they will have to rely on us. And that's where our support for Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu comes, our third-way policy, our third-way, the hope for, for people. And our people, they do not have a specific love for Mr. Kılıçdaroğlu. It's not that they love what Kılıçdaroğlu is doing or what he's saying. It's that they want to make sure Erdogan loses, 
just as we said in 2015, that will not make you president. And this time we're, we're, we're saying, we're going to make you lose. You're going to lose. And it's going to be because of us. That's the third way policy of our party. Yes, well, I'm glad you um, mentioned 2015. And yes, that's when Erdogan lost his parliamentary majority for the first time precisely because of uh, the HDP and Selatin Demirtas's brilliant campaign that won over so many um, non-Kurds. Um, yeah, that was quite extraordinary. But then we saw what Erdogan did. Uh, he played really dirty and he basically didn't allow a coalition to emerge and forced a new election. And in the interim, we saw the horrible violence. Are you are you concerned about violence? We know definitely that Kvichdarola uh, is. We saw what happened in Erzurum yesterday with crowds pelting uh, the Istanbul mayor with rocks. And we're in the last stretch here. And I, I mean, we all really fear that things could get worse. And, you know, it, often, more often than not, it's the Kurds who bear the brunt of it. What sort of, you know, violence do you fear that may be out there? And what can you do to prevent it? Yeah, I, I think this is part of the psychological warfare Um from you know changing your jacket as a president wearing his uh, Air Force jacket and putting his Ray-Ban glasses and bracing himself as if he's going to war. I think this is all part of the psychological warfare. You know, barking scares people more than biting. And uh, <laughs> I think that's a lot of barking so far. And I love dogs and I apologize to all the dogs for using that <laughs> as an example. Well, I'm glad you said that because, you know, I have two dogs who I adore, simply adore. <laughs> exactly. So I apologize to all dogs no, 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 out there. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I, I think it's a lot of barking uh, with a little bit of biting, but it's all part of the general psychological warfare. They want to intimidate people so they wouldn't take part in political campaigning. They wouldn't take part in ballot box security, uh, electoral security. So it's part of um, part of the plan for, for the government. And I mean, we saw what happened in Erzurum, right? It's... Uh, Again, I'm going to go back to 2015 and remind uh, what happened. I think it was June 5, when HDP was supposed to hold a rally in Erzurum, and that resulted in the burning of about 150 vehicles of the HDP convoy, and um, they they uh, wounded around 200 people, and taking one of them, um, one of our party member, our activist taking him and throwing him into a burning car. And that, that uh, incident went unpunished. We know nothing about the result of that investigation. If that was investigated at the time and was properly punished and the, the ones responsible were held accountable, we wouldn't have the Erzurum incident from yesterday. The impunity, right? It, it's part of the general culture in Turkey. In this, in this authoritarian state, Impunity is almost guaranteed for government followers, for, for AKP followers. And when you have the ministers who are responsible for our security, who are responsible for investigating any sort of uh, violent incidents, are also running in the election, this makes it a more dangerous 
climate for anyone to practice politics. Um, I don't think people should be intimidated by what's being said. Um, it's it's going to die out. This this understanding, this tradition of just uh, gaslighting people, this uh, tradition of piggybacking on people's fears, it's going to die out. We just need to get through May 14. And after that, it's going to be much better. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear you sound so confident. I've just come back from northeast Syria where I've seen the impunity, where I've seen what's happened to Kurdish children who've been killed in Turkish drone strikes. And um, yeah, so uh, 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 I'm kind of rather uh, depressed about all of that, obviously. And, and, and That's the other thing. Right? The extent to which this uh, government can go to ensure its own survival. Um Moving on to electoral security, because that's another big issue. What are you guys doing to sort of make sure that no cheating goes on? Because there's especially the concern in rural areas and with the gendarme and everything. And we have experienced this before of ballot stuffing, of intimidation. Um, what, what, what kind of measures are you guys taking to make sure that that's kept at a minimum? We are not only taking security as a uh, green left party, but we're also collaborating with civil society groups like, like uh, with with uh, lawyers groups like uh, OHD, uh, Libertarian Lawyers Associations um, Association, and we're, we're uh, cooperating with them. They will be providing legal help on the day of the election in the countries, not only the southeast, but also in the western parts of it. Uh, we are also in touch with media freedom organizations, uh, the ones that are following on media freedom. Uh, they are also going to make sure that we are aware of any sort of pressure on media uh, on the day of the election, because most of us rely on media reports to hear about these violations so that we could direct our groups to the to the alleged uh, irregularities. And um, the, the most important thing that we are doing is we are assigning uh, observers to almost every ballot box in the region. We also have international activists who are in the area. They will also be traveling around and monitoring any sort of irregularities and reporting on them. And if I'm not mistaken, even though I have not seen them yet, but I think OICE has also commissioned some uh, delegations to monitor the elections in this part of the country. Uh, so we are very well prepared and I'm sure they will be irregularities, but we will be able to document and also object to them in not only in district uh, bodies, but also in general with the Yeseka. So um, getting back to uh, some of the sort of, you know, brainwashing tactics or mudding the watering water tactics of uh, the AKP, there's this sort of rumor floating around, or not a rumor, in fact, I, I mean, Selatin Demirtas said it was going on, that the government is sending people to, to actually probably Hakan Fidan, right, the head of MIT, to talk to Abdullah Öcalan and somehow secure his backing. Uh, what that actually means, we don't really know. Does it mean just telling the Kurds to not vote for the opposition rather than to come out and vote for the AKP, which is, you know, 
yeah. unthinkable. We don't know exactly what's going on. And uh, it's pretty clear that Ojalan's not playing along, but the impact of this can be that some Kurds may think, oh gosh, so maybe there's a chance that we can go back to the peace talks. Maybe it's best that Erdogan stays in power because after all, let's admit it, he's the guy who, the one who sat down with the PKK for the first time in 2008-9, and then again with Öcalan directly in 2012-13. Isn't there a risk that somehow that seed can be planted in some people's minds? Because they have no experience, after all, of the CHP, of the opposition, and then there's, of course, people like Akshener, whose you know, um, attitude towards the Kurds is, is like pretty unpalatable to most Kurds. Isn't, isn't that a bit of a risk for you guys as you campaign? And is that something you have to address when you're campaigning? I think the, the Kurdish people uh, in particular have understood that uh, a peace process cannot be done with Erdogan or his AKP. There has been too much blood under the bridge. Therefore, I don't see any chance of us sitting down, uh, us as in the Kurdish political movement, sitting down with Erdogan or the AKP and talk about any sort of peace, not after what happened in, in this part of the country after 2015, not on, uh, after what happened in Syria, in Kurdish towns, where uh, it, actions that UN describes as genocide were, were committed. Um, not after war crimes were committed in Kurdish towns, not just in, in the Turkish part, but also in the Syria part. So the government tried this method in the municipal elections. They sent an academic to Imralu and brought back a letter uh, telling people not to vote, uh, to not exactly not to vote, but a very vaguely worded letter uh, brought at a time when Mr. Rojalan's lawyers were not allowed to see him, but somehow an academic managed to go to the island. Um, so judging by that experience, I do not see that uh, method working on our people. They're just so tired of everything they have gone through. Uh, on top of the, the, the security policies in the region, they also have economic financial issues. Of they are course. not just being dismissed, ignored, uh, cracked down on, but they're also hungry. They're suffering financially. So it's just it's at a time when enough is enough. Uh, there's, there's not more than that. It just can't, people think it can't get worse than that. And when we talk to them, they say, what's the next thing he could do? He, he could kill us. And that's all we have left now, our lives. That's, he could, that's what he could take because he has taken our freedoms. He has taken our money. The next thing is our life. So what if he does lose, you know? Is he just going to go away quietly, you think? We're going to win so majestic. Our victory is going to be so majestic that he will have no chance but to go. It's just, he can't, he can't. It will be, it will be results that he cannot deny. Well, I want to end then on that very hopeful note and wish you all the best in your campaign. And please give uh, your beautiful little baby girl a big hug and a kiss from me. And we hope to 
see you in the Turkish parliament very soon and um, keep up the great work, dear Ceylan. And thank you again for sparing time for us during this very busy time in your life. Thank you so much for having me on Berlin. And I'd like to also leave with a final note that this will become a country where you will be able to freely travel, come here, see your family, and, you know, just feel safe again. Thank you. Thank you. Here, here, Jaylan. Thank you. And this brings us to the end to this week's episode of On the Middle East. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jaylan. I think she's going to be really terrific in Parliament. I look forward to being with you again very soon. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.